Hello, welcome back to another episode of Out the Gate. I'm Ben Shaw, your host for this show about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Sponsorship of the podcast comes from Shearwater Sailing, a charter business run by Kevin Wasbauer out of Monterey Bay. Kevin offers offshore excursions aboard a fully equipped FAR 53 named Atalanta. In episode number 85, I talked to Kevin about his sailing experience and how he decided to start Shearwater Sailing. And after that interview, I got to go out sailing on Monterey Bay with Kevin aboard Atalanta. And boy, was I impressed. She's a beautiful, comfortable, and safe vessel. And as I mentioned last week, Shearwater's going to be in San Francisco Bay in late March and early April to attend the Sail GP Regatta and do some charters. Sail GP is March 26th and 27th. Atalanta is booked already on the 27th, but still available for charter on the 26th. That day could include sailing on San Francisco Bay, watching the amazing foiling catamarans race from the special on-the-water viewing area and possibly visiting the race village. Kevin's also making individual berths available. Now, this sounds really cool to me. I mean, all of it does, but uh, for sailing from Monterey to San Francisco and from San Francisco back to Monterey, it's a great opportunity for anyone wishing to gain some offshore experience. Kevin and his crew can really tailor the experience to you doing more or less teaching, depending on your interests. Uh, anything from navigation to sail handling, helming, cooking underway, and much more. And they'll be doing some day charters on San Francisco Bay during that time in March, as I mentioned. So feel free to give them a call to discuss the possibilities. You can visit shearwatersailing.net or reach out directly at 650-743-1389. Or if email is your preferred way to reach out, it's info at shearwatersailing.net. Today's guest got into sailing an unusual way thanks to 80s television shows, namely The Love Boat and Miami Vice, and a mistaken subscription to Cruising World. Despite the unusual introduction, Michael Robertson became an avid sailor and eventually the editor of Good Old Boat magazine. He and his wife, Wendy, yes, a great name for a sailor, met through a Latitude 38 crew list and then took off cruising in Mexico through the Panama Canal and around the Caribbean aboard their Newport 27. Later, they took off again with their two daughters and cruised up to Alaska, again down to Mexico and across the Pacific to Australia. That was all aboard their Sparkman and Stevens Fuji 40. An accomplished journalist and author, Michael's written for magazines in the US, Canada, and the UK, and he was the senior editor at Good Old Boat Magazine. He also co-authored with Ben Gifford and Sarah Don Johnson the wonderful book Voyaging with Kids, A Guide to Family Life Afloat. It's a book I keep by my bedside and leaf through often. So, here we go. I've been sailing since my 20s and uh, got really into it. It's kind of interesting how I got into sailing and then I kind of realized that I could go cruising 
wasn't really something I had internalized, but that happened and kind of changed my life. I guess buying the boat changed my life when I was in my 20s. And uh, then my wife and I, we kind of had this shared a dream of going cruising and later in life we were going to do it. And midlife, we decided to stop and do it early and best decision we ever made. We grew up in Southern California. I'm an English major. We moved to Washington, D.C. when we got married. And so we kind of spent half of our lives in the East Coast and half on the West Coast. And we're back on the West, or not on the West Coast, we're in Arizona right now. That's great, Michael. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you is there are so many parallels, it seems, between, between the two of us, East and West Coast, sailing, family cruising. Yeah. But let's let's jump back. You said you didn't start sailing until you were in your 20s. How did you first discover sailing? You know, folks had a boat. It was a ski boat, but that was like, that was it. I No familiarity with sailing. No, didn't know any sailors, never went sailing. In middle school, they, they had a, this is back in the early 80s, they had a, a magazine drive. So all the kids are sent home with a long list of magazines and their parents are supposed to subscribe to one. Right. And it raises money for the school. So I bring this list home and my mom takes a look at it. And she was a huge fan of the love boat <laughs> on ABC with Captain Steven. It was That was the hot show of the time. Oh, I remember it well. Awful, awful show. So that was her big thing. And, and she and my dad had gone on a little Mexico three-day princess cruise or something. And she sees, she's looking down the list of magazines and she sees Cruising World. And she thinks, Captain Steubing in the love boat, and this is what I want to read. And so she <laughs> describes to it, and it shows up at the house, and it's nothing like what she imagined, but they kind of, my both my folks kind of started reading it, and then they renewed their subscription. So for the, my entire childhood after that, it was always sitting on the coffee table. So I had a sense that there were people out there, not just sailing, but living on boats and, and traveling long distances, and I, I just kind of knew about it that way. And then when I was in my early 20s, I kind of hit a place where I, I'd started in, at university, but I wasn't really advancing. I had no idea what I'm doing with my life. I kind of felt like I didn't know what to do and I wanted direction. I didn't have any. I was, I'd moved out at 18, but I was back at home visiting my folks for dinner or something. And I noticed I was like a spin sheet or some kind of boats for sale rag. And I just picked it up and I realized, oh my God, you, there, there are boats listed in there for like two grand, like a big sailboat. And I thought, wow. And I, I, I could buy a boat and actually live on it like Sonny Crockett on Miami Vice. That would be so cool. And that was really the only basis I had for even wanting to buy a boat. I thought there's a, there was a 26 foot Thunderbird in there, which is a plywood epoxy covered thing for two grand. I thought if I buy this boat, my life would be changed. It'd be so awesome. And I kind of soon learned more and realized buying a $2,000, 26 foot Thunderbird wood boat would be the worst thing I could do. And Saved more and more and um, ended up buying a Newport 27 for 8,500 bucks. Wow. Several months later, after saving and saving and you know working, and I uh, moved aboard not knowing how to sail. I, I hired a guy to do the sea trial with me, kind of just became that guy that lives on a sailboat. I liked it and got involved with the community, started reading Latitude 38. One day, I, I thought, you know, that's kind of it. I'd go back, say, out to the Channel Islands often and one day I was talking to some friends, doc mates, and you know, I'd been learning to sail and getting better and better. And you know, they suggested, why don't you just sail this thing down to Mexico? And I thought, oh, I can't. You, know, you got to have this, I'd read Cruising World, you got to have this Hans Christian, you need a blue water boat to do something like that. And 
no, no, your boat's fine. You know, you've been working on it. You, you fifty gallon oil drum could go down the Baja. So I kind of started planning that trip, and for four years I planned it. I was um, twenty seven, going on twenty eight. It was nineteen ninety six, and I took off and sailed south. I had found a crew member from Latitude thirty eight, who is now my wife. We didn't know each other, but she wanted to go south, and I was going south, and I was super serious about the trip. I said there'd be no romance or anything. You know, I'd saved all this money and you got that money to fly home from Cabo if it doesn't work out. And we, we <laughs> left and for seven months just had the time of our lives. And we ended up sailing all the way down to Panama and through the canal, and up the Caribbean to Cuba and then to Florida, sold the wow. boat. But from then on, we were just both hooked on cruising. And we thought we're, we're going to work hard and we're going to retire in our 60s or 50s. And we'll go sailing as, you know, do it real, you know, like sail around the world on a real blue water boat. But that's how it all started for me. I know that was long-winded. I just No, that's great. So many questions for that. So I read, I think, that you and your wife, Wendy, and is that her actual name? I have to ask. Yeah, she was um, she was raised by hippie parents, so it's Wendy Arrow is her, is her name. Her awesome. middle name was Arrow. What a but great yeah, name, a great for, name a for a sailor. Yeah. But you guys met at a Latitude 38 crew party, is that right? Yeah, I mean, this is back before the internet and it, it wasn't, I wasn't, I was down in Southern California and she was actually in the Bay Area where she'd grown up. And so we didn't connect physically at a crew party, but I had sent a letter to like a, a real mail letter to her and, and other people that I was considering said, Hey, you know, I've got a boat, I'm heading South in December. And she is one of the people that responded to the letter. We started talking on the phone and then she came down for a visit and we both agreed, yeah, we can make this work. The boat looked seaworthy to her and we went for a day sail and we got along and we said, okay, let's, you know, I'm leaving in, I think that was May of 96. And I said, I'm leaving in December. And she quit her job or, or put it on hold and sublettered her room that she was renting and we took off. How great. I think Latitude 38 just recently in the past few months did something where they were calling out to people like who's found crew or partners through crew parties. I hope that you sent in your story. You know, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it, but they did the exact same thing in about 2001, 2002. And I did do it back then. Okay, good. I told my story and uh, I'm in debt to them for sure. Well, I am too, because they've been very supportive of this podcast, but I think you got a little bit more out of the deal. Yeah, I got a wife, you got a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how'd the Newport, it was a, you said it was a, what size was it? It was a Newport 27. 27. Uh, How did it hold up going all down the coast through the canal and, and through the Caribbean? Great. Um, had a little inboard diesel and I'd done a lot of work on it. It, it, was a, it. it was a fine boat for probably the trip down to Baja. And even all the way down to Panama, it was fine. But once we got into the Caribbean, um, it was getting late in the season. I think it was, uh, it was already May when we were down in Panama storms are, are starting to happen, tropical storms. And we actually sailed from Panama to Colombia. You know, I, I didn't have all the weather resources that we have today. And sure. yeah, what year was this? Uh, 96. Okay. Yeah, we left December of 96. And it was, uh, it was May, late, later, late May when we were down in, um, of 97, when we were in um, Panama and needed to go north. And we were out of money. Like we were just two college kids in our 20s with no money. And, um, so we, we'd gone to Colombia, one of the Colombian islands, Isla Providencia, I think. We met this other crew. They were on a McGregor 64, I remember. 
we were asking them about weather and they said, oh, we've got a great window, we're heading north. I mean, not even considering at the time. I, I wasn't, I'm not a great sailor, but I was really not a great sailor back then. Let's follow in their coattails, not realizing they sailed twice as fast as we did. Uh -huh. So we started on this passage. We got a, a Sarpe out to Roatan, the Bay Islands, and we left on that trip. And it took us eight days and we never got to Roatan. We ended up sailing into Cuba just in a survival mode. We got caught in a, in a really bad storm, especially bad for my level of sailing at the time and, and a Newport 27 that really wasn't the boat for this with a crew that was not even as good a sailor or familiar at the time that I was and just no real-time weather information, nothing. It, yeah, it was an eight-day passage and we, yeah, we, we kind of thought we were going to lose our lives. I, when we got into Cuba, it was such a relief. Tell us a little bit more about the storm. What, what the problem? Again, was. so we're sailing and we really have no sense of and we had a handheld GPS and we had charts. So we're mapping our progress. So we knew where we were in the world. It was probably day six, probably 10 o'clock at night or something. And I remember I was up on watch. Wendy was down below, probably trying to sleep. And I just saw this black wall behind us. I think there was probably moonlight or something. Just super dark laying all the way across the horizon behind us. And I called her up and I said, that looks really bad. She says, probably just a squall. And it just kept growing and, you know, we reefed heavily and we're waiting for this thing. But when it hit, it hit really hard and it just didn't let up for 36 hours. And all of that time I was in the cockpit. I mean, I was literally, I, I couldn't even, it was a tiller still steered boat. It was pretty tender and probably had to do with me not knowing how to re, how to trim sails like I probably should have as well. And um, so it was, it was a kind of situation where I couldn't even leave the helm. I couldn't you know, I was learning in real time. I couldn't have her come up and take over for me so I could even go to the bathroom. And I'm sitting there in Fowley, just relieving myself on myself there in the cockpit. You know, there's heavy rain and it's, I'm cold and so tired at the end. She's passing up food and stuff. And she, she was frightened down below. It was just a two novices in a really, a situation that, that would be easy to manage now. And, in in, you know, we had many such similarities, such situations in our last boat on our last cruise, but we were different sailors, we had a, a different boat. It wouldn't certainly be a big deal. Uh, this time for us at the time, it really was. You got into Cuba. Did you ever have doubts about going back out? I mean, that sounds like a pretty terrifying situation you were in. And yeah, you know what? I, I've told the story a lot of times, and I think what I learned from it is there's, there's really two types of people that come out of an event like that. You're either kind of empowered, like, wow, okay, I get it now. I I know what I did wrong. I, I see what I need to know, what I needed to know. And you kind of get this feeling of empowerment, like, okay, okay. It, it probably gets worse than that, but maybe not much worse and probably not very often. And I, I felt much better about things. Like, you know, when we did leave Cuba for Florida, just like we'd learned a whole lot. And I, I think, yeah, it could have been that we tried to get a flight home from Cuba because it was, you know, we were terrified and never wanted right. to set foot on the boat again, but obviously that wasn't the case. For us personally. Which is great because you've had many wonderful sea miles since. Yeah. I mean, there's really big seas. It wasn't, we were definitely not in a situation you'd want to be in that boat. It wasn't the boat for the conditions. And like I said, we weren't the sailors for the conditions either, but but they were bad conditions. It was, seas are probably running, I, I, I'm always so careful not to exaggerate, but I, I'd say between 15 and 20 feet, pretty close with some of the swells breaking. And that's how we wound up in Cuba, because we just couldn't navigate anywhere else. We were just focused on keeping the seas astern 
And, you know, when he's down there plotting with his handheld GPS and putting the numbers on the chart, paper charts as she, as she got them and said, you know, look, just keep going. And if you can get five degrees over, we can tuck into this little bay that I see. And that's literally how we went and what we did. And yeah, we survived. What would you have done differently being the sailor who you are today with more experience than what you did? We wouldn't have left. We had no sense of the weather and you're, we're gone for this. It, it actually turned out to be seven and a half, eight day passage from Colombia to Cuba. And yeah, you wouldn't leave on a trip like that without, even back then, if I'd known better, I wouldn't have left without a better sense of the weather and the ability to get weather. We had one of those Yacht Boy 400 SSB receivers, put AA batteries in it. You can hold it in your hands. Mm -hmm. it, it just never worked right. I didn't have the tools I needed. I didn't know how to use them, I guess. You know, we sailed across in our Fuji 40 and went up to Alaska and, and you know, since that time, you know, decades later and um, yeah, we know so much more and there's, there's, yeah, we, we wouldn't have done anything the same. It was, and again, it wasn't the right boat for the trip either. Well, let's talk about that, that next boat. So the two of you finished that trip up, I assume became a couple and got married along the way somewhere. Yep. Moved back to the West coast. Yeah. And how did you decide, all right, we're not going to wait till we're retired and go off again, but we're going we're gonna to do it again sooner. What, what, how'd that happen? I guess just authors. I'm always constantly reading, you know, especially about the stuff like this that I'm interested in. And so I, I read a book. It was Tom Neal's All in the Same Boat. It was written probably back in the 80s. He had two young daughters, maybe the early 90s. And they were like commuter sailors. They, he was working professionally somewhere in the um, in New England, I think, and they would sail every year down to the Bahamas, you know, follow the seasons and come back up north during the summer and, and work. And I just, I'd read a lot of cruising stories. I'd always thought it was a couple's thing, but reading that book kind of turned me on to the idea that, wow, you don't have to wait until you're just a couple again. We could go with our kids and in some capacity. And so we kind of had that in the back of our heads. And then, you know, we'd moved to the East Coast. My wife got a prestigious internship at National Geographic, and she was later hired by them. And so we kind of stayed in Washington, D.C. for that. And I was working for a um, high-powered consulting firm doing IT stuff for Booz Allen Hamilton. And, and the, our lives just became so, so busy. I mean, our, our, our careers left no time for anything. You know, I was working 70 hours a week at one point, and it just got to be not what we were looking for. And we had one daughter and she's a, almost two years old. And then we had another daughter and I just wasn't spending time, you know, that I wanted with the family and, you know, we're hiring other people to watch our kids. And it's just, it wasn't what we wanted. We realized, and I had read Tom Neal's book out, you know, we could be doing this as a family, but you know, is this the right thing to do? Are we not saving for retirement? Yada, yada. And, the, the the parallels here are astounding me because what uh, when was windy at national geographic because i was there two you were national geographic? i was at national geographic yeah we may we have overlapped we have to we'll have to figure that out that's funny she worked in the maps division and she was there from 99 to 2009 yeah and she was the when she left she was a senior gis analyst so heavily involved in all their maps, like her name's in the Atlas for all those times and oh, all the great. magazine insert maps she worked on. That's fantastic. I was, uh, we overlapped probably a couple of years. 
what were you where were you working i was doing radio they're doing a um a radio program with Boyd Madsen called National Geographic Weekend, and then also a little bit of television. I love that you that it's books that have inspired that inspired you and your wife to take off cruising. In part because sitting by my bedside is a book that you wrote that's inspiring me called Voyaging with Kids, and it's was well, both an inspiration and a resource for me along with many other books, but um, I, I love it. And, but so let's talk a little bit about that experience. You took off what year with your two daughters and how old were they? Well, first it's gratifying to hear it. Thanks, thanks for saying that. You know, books are a lot of work and the, the return really that's of value is when people say that it, uh, it inspired them or they enjoyed it in some way. So thank you. Yeah, we, we had a, our first daughter and when our second daughter was born, that was 2006. And we said at that time, let's make the proverbial five-year plan, but we stuck to it. So we were gone five years, almost to the day that we made that decision when Francis was born. Now we had a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old daughter and it's 2011. And we had a boat that we bought just before we left sitting in Mexico that I'd flown down to look at it briefly, but that was it. And we got in our Ford Escort wagon and towed a little trailer behind it. We sold pretty much everything we owned and we drove from Washington DC down to Puerto Vallarta and then sold the car and the trailer and moved on to the boat. I love it. Early 2011. And the boat was a, a Fuji 40, a Sparkman and Stevens design, is that right? Yep, 1978 Fuji 40, yeah. And can I ask how much you got it for? Yeah, we paid 64 um, for the boat. It's a great boat. I mean, I just, uh, I was just looking at it online. It's different from all the other Fujis in that um, they are all John Alden designs. And like you said, this was an SNS design. I think when the Valiant 40 came out, you know, Fuji had been focused on these John Alden designs, which are kind of wooden boat designs that the fiberglass manufacturers were kind of just making, turning these wooden boat designs into fiberglass construction, which wasn't necessary. And, and the full keel was out of favor. Um, after the Valiant 40. So I think this Fuji 40, which came out, they only made 13 of them right before they went out of business. And I think it was their last gasp attempt to be relevant to the market. Mm -hmm. uh, but the underbody, the Fuji 40 looks almost identical to the Valiant 40. What was the adjustment like with two young daughters? How did they take to suddenly transitioning to life aboard? Just fine. I mean, I think it all depends on the age. And I think kids at that age, and we talk about that in the book too. There's, there's kind of like different chapters in life you can go do this. And for children, those chapters are just separated by a few years at a time. But I think anything seven and below uh, is pretty sweet. As long as, you know, our five-year-old at the time, um, she's just along for the ride. Doesn't matter where she is, as long as she's with us. The seven-year-old was starting to form attachments in DC and, you know, to, to, to bring her along successfully, it really meant kind of involving her in the trip. So we, we were very consciously involved her in the planning stages during those during the time the five years that we knew we were doing this which i think was really important because she kind of that's all she knew that that was coming and then as it got closer you know when we, when i went to look at the boat in mexico i brought her with me so just she and i to go down and look at the boat and make sure it was okay for the family and then she got to fly home and report back to mama that you know yeah this this is a good boat for us um, that's great and here's where my bed is going to be and you know she's so it, getting her involved in the process, I think, was, was key um, for the seven-year-old. The five-year-old, I don't think it mattered. 
the adjustment was easy. You know, their kids are so flexible and yeah, they were for the first few years, they would just sit on a dock and hang their heads over looking at all little critters crawling around. On the <laughs> I'm laughing because power. every time I take my daughters to the boat, they spend all their time pulling muscles off of the yeah. dock. <laughs> yeah. Great entertainment for them. And yeah, it was a good age for that. And so you headed from Mexico where? Uh, well, when we got to the boat, we didn't head anywhere. We, we kind of parked, we, we got a spot in a marina and we had a lot of work to do on the boat and we knew it. And, you know, we, I came down with a whole bunch of supplies You know, we had new rigging with us. We had new paint with us. And so we hauled out real quick and did the bottom and tended to some issues and uh, put her back in the water. And then, you know, kind of started doing all the stuff we needed to do just to get her ready to feel safe sailing on as a family. And that took several months. So we were probably six months down there in Mexico um, maybe nine months total, maybe we spent, you know, six months working in light cruising and then kind of getting more into to sailing and, and cruising and less working on the boat. Um, and we headed north. And so we were up in the Sea of Cortez for a while and then came back down and up the outside of the Baja. Somebody just yesterday said to me, don't go into the Sea of Cortez, you'll get stuck. The Sea of Cortez is amazing. Um, I, I've done a lot, you know, I've, I've done a lot of sailing, but I haven't circumnavigated. I know you talked to my co-author, Bian, recently. Yeah. I have not asked her this directly, but I've heard from other circumnavigators like her who have really seen everything there is to see from a sailboat. And a lot of them will tell you it all comes back to the sea. It's one of the highlights. And it might be the case. I'm not going to speak for Bian, but it might be the case for her because I know her family has spent an awful lot of time there. They're, they're there right now. It's, it's awesome. We've seen blue whales in the sea. We've been, we've seen sperm whales in the sea just parked. Like they, they look like rocks from a distance because they sleep vertically. And we've thought, what are these rocks doing? And they're not charted. And we sail up closer and realize there's these sperm whales just oh my sleeping. And then we've launched the dinghy and go look at them and before they even move. And it, it, it's amazing. We've seen blue whales come like screaming past us a quarter mile away, but you just see this big silver, massive silver gleaming, bluish silver back going through the water and you're doing, you know, five, six knots and they look, they're easily doing twice your speed. That's you know, I've seen all kinds of stuff. <laughs> just just amazing stuff in the sea. It's, it, it is, it's, it's an awesome place. But you did know you wanted to go further afield. So where, what direction did you head once you left the Sea of Cortez? Yeah, we left the sea and we were headed north and we went all the way up to Alaska. And most of that's motoring. You know, they say the best way to go to Alaska from Mexico is out to Hawaii. And that's true. We had family and friends up and down the West Coast and we've been on the East Coast for 10 years. So this was kind of an opportunity to spend time seeing them. And that was kind of a reward for the girls too. So we picked our weather windows where there was just nothing happening, flat calm. And then we just motor north 50 miles and park and motor north 50 miles and park. So we took a couple of months to get up to Victoria, where we waited out the winter. And then the following late spring, early summer, we started north again and went all the way up to Victoria being British Columbia. I'm sorry. Right. Went all the way up north to um, Glacier Bay. I just went on and on about how amazing the sea is. So I can't tell you how amazing the Glacier Bay is, but Glacier Bay is also <laughs> really, really amazing. I mean, to sit on your boat and you got bears a hundred feet away on the shoreline, turning over rocks and eating the mussels on the bottom like turning over 300 pound rocks with a single pond and 
they're just that close to you and you can hear them crunching. And we saw orcas, we saw our first icebergs as we were heading up to Southeast Alaska, just so gorgeous, incredible wildlife. Wow. And then, so it took a long time because we had to winter over in Victoria to make this happen because Glacier Bay, the window is so small, um, but the inside passage was really cool. And then when we came down, we just sailed all the way from Glacier Bay on the outside. You know, we stopped several times, many times, but we just sailed all the way back down. It was just like a, a downwind dream sail all the way back down to Mexico. And mm. our year in the Sea of Cortez, finally in 2015, we decided to head out across the Pacific. To where? Straight to the Marquesas. It was a 26 and a half day passage. And we arrived on Mother's Day in the Marquesas, French Polynesia. And how long did you spend in the South Pacific? Well, we spent three years crossing the Pacific. So we kind of maxed, you know, maximized our time in, in every, we didn't hurry, obviously. The, it's all the South Pacific once you get going below the equator. So in French Polynesia, we were only there for 90 days. Uh, that's all they allow. And actually, we were there a little longer because, you know, we, we waited to check in a little bit until we got to where we could check in. And then we did the same on the other side. And of course, French Polynesia is made up of several island groups, so spanning, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles. So the Marquesas is just one of those island groups, and it's the first one that you hit as you're heading across the Pacific West. But we had 90 days between all of these island groups, which just feels like a huge rush, which is really a shame. Um, yeah. Because they're so beautiful, and they're also diverse. I mean, the Marquesas have nothing in common uh, geologically with, say, the Tuamotus just completely different night and day. And so you really want to spend as much, you know, you want to spend at least three months in each of those places, but you can't unless, unless, well, we couldn't as, as U.S. citizens, but if you have a different passport, you can, or if you get an exemption ahead of time, you, you can, I think it's, I think it's complicated and who knows what's happening these days with COVID, but we spent our time in French Polynesia and then um, we went on to the Cook Islands and then we went on to Tonga which it was so amazing. So much to say about Tonga. It's, it's really a fascinating place in good and bad ways, but we loved it, loved it. And Lynn and Larry, you mentioned them. They actually have godchildren in Tonga named Lynn and Larry. Oh, that's right. I yeah, have I heard that before. Right. Yeah. Lynn, actually, I was in contact with her at the time, and she said, oh, you know, you look them up. And, but we weren't there um, near that village at the right time and so yeah it didn't it didn't work out but yeah, yeah well speaking of of lynn and larry lynn was just on on the program uh we had a wonderful conversation but i was scrolling through your blog and there's a wonderful picture of you with your boat hauled and you said oh lynn had just come by to help with the bottom and there she is sanding the bottom of your boat <laughs> <laughs> what's the story there if you look at it she has no mask on so she's just posing it was a joke so i had i was in fiji and i was alone i was hauled out in a yard at one of the yards in fiji doing just a bottom job that needed to be done at that time i think i knew that i, I i'd been in touch and she said oh are you in fiji we're going to be heading there so she and her friend david had come by and they they said, where, where are you? And I said, I'm at this yard at this island. So we'll, we'll drop by and say hello. And so she came by and I said, hey, this will be funny. Why don't you just hold this sander like it's on and I'll take your picture and I'll tell people that you walked by. And I said, hey, Lynn, I need you to sand the bottom. 
Well, that, that's what that was about. Just being I love it. It was a great idea. Great yeah. idea. It got me. <laughs> good, good, good. I love the circular nature of this story because we started this whole conversation with you talking about your introduction to sailing because your parents subscribed to Cruising World. You start unwittingly, uh, unwittingly, right? But all of a sudden, you're editing or be become the editor at Good Old Boat magazine. How did that come about? Well, when we left, you know, like everyone else, we just got this little kitty, this pocket of money that we, we know we've got. And you want to make it last as long as possible because you know you're going to be enjoying this, this life. But there's not a lot of opportunities to work unless you're you know, a nurse or something. I wanted to write. I, I, it's kind of a passion of mine. Like I said, I'm an English major. And I, I, I thought, you know, I'll just start writing. Maybe I can write a magazine story. And I just started. And it, it turned out to be something that, was, that I could do. And um, I got to know some of the editors. And I started selling my work. And I wrote and sold many dozens of stories to all the magazines. That's how I got to know Karen and Jerry Larson, or Karen Larson, Jerry Palace, who are the founders of Good Old Boat Magazine. Um, I hadn't written much for them, but I'd sold them a couple cover pictures and just a few, a few articles that worked for their magazine. One time, you know, we're, we're in the Pacific and we're, we're running low on money and I'm, I'm still writing. And she sent me an email and, and said, you know, are you would you be interested in working for us? And I said, well, you know, I'm out sailing. And she said, yeah, we could be, we could make that work. And you want to interview? And I said, sure. And so I interviewed with her and, I, and she hired me as a managing editor and I'd never worked in the business, but I, I liked to edit and I liked to write and I knew sailing and I was very familiar with the magazine. So I took on this 20 hour a week job, but I'm doing it remotely from the South Pacific while we're on the move. So it was really difficult after that point to start you know, to negotiate passages and even like internet. We were in Tonga for a, a long time and the internet was so maddeningly slow. It was, it was awful. And so I'd, I'd spend an hour downloading pictures. And they started doing low res stuff for me to accommodate me, but I got the job done. I was working with um, some really good people, not just Karen as editor, but Jeremy McGeary, who was um, the late Jeremy McGeary, who was an editor at Cruising World for so many years. And he was a senior editor at Good Old Boat, learned a ton and enjoyed the work and the people. And a couple years passed and we were kind of at a crossroads. I mean, all of a sudden we had this, I had this gig that was fully paying for cruising while we were cruising, which sounds like a dream to so many, I understand. But once you're doing it, it, it does make things more difficult. Like I said, passages, it's you know hard to plan things. I mean, one of the rules of sailing is you don't, ever tell anyone where you're going to be when you're going to be there because you, you you it's not safe you can't put yourself on a schedule like that and right disregard the weather or the other factors that are much more important than you know someone's plane flying in or a deadline that you have for work so I mean I was making it work but cruising wasn't the same anymore after that then I had a daughter who you know we've been out at this point for about seven years and she was starting to express her wants and you know she this is great thank you but I really I want to see what a normal high school experience is like mm -hmm. and, then, and then right about that time when this like I said crossroads Karen and Jerry contacted me again I mean we're, we're in contact daily but they said hey you know we need to retire we're done will you take over as editor 
I said, well, Jer you know, Jeremy should take over as editor. He's, he's so much better than me. And they said, uh, and he doesn't, he's not interested in that. So I said, okay. And so in, um, that was about the middle of 2017, I guess. And um, right off the bat, it, it's a lot of work. You're, you're, it's not just a 40 hour week job. You're just kind of doing it all the time. So then it became, you know, we're in Fiji and the family is going off and doing cruising kind of things. And I'm down in the V-birth, just typing, typing, typing on the computer hours and hours and hours every day. So that, that kind of set everything in motion. We said, you know what, let's, it's time to stop. So we, we got ourselves to Australia, spent some time in Vanuatu, a little bit uh, like a day in New Caledonia, landed in Australia and decided let's close this chapter and we can always go sailing again. And uh, we moved back to the States and sold the boat, moved back to the States. And uh, I was working full-time as Good Boats editor. And I, I was just reading last night, your blog post from March of 2018 in which you're talking about it coming to an end, your cruising coming to an end for, for that time. And um, can I, can I say one thing about that? Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I gotta say this when you're in the, in the planning to go cruising stage, I mean, at least back when we were doing it, maybe now things have changed with Facebook and everything, but blogs were the thing you, know, you just, I, I was reading 10 different blogs from families, mostly just soaking it all in every every details you know because it was so relevant and important to me at the time and it 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 always seemed there was never any closure like these blogs would just stop and it was so maddening like why what's going on where's your family now what are you doing you didn't say mm -hmm. goodbye and i thought i would never do that and i did um <laughs> and i've kept thinking over the years like i want to go back and like type a closing blog post <laughs> and I never have. And now as the time has passed, I know that I never will, but it's just weird. I just wanted to acknowledge that. I, 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 well, never... I, no, I, I'm glad you said that, but at the same time, Michael, you do in a way with this post, it really is a transition. It's clear. There are posts after this. Yes. And then it does stop, but you're really talking about the change that you have made this decision and how it's difficult, but you're looking forward to the next step. So I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed reading that. And thank you for that, that transition that often doesn't happen in blogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a weird thing. And uh, it, it was so hectic and busy and we're in Australia oh, no, trying to see the boat and my mom passed away right then. And mm -hmm. I've got this overwhelming job that I'm, you know, growing into and, and yeah. So it was, you know, that, that's my excuse, but I, I just was always surprised as I look back, like I became the guy that I said, I'll never do that, you know, so. Yeah. Now, have you moved on from good old boat? Or are you still there? I did. So I, I was at the helm for, I guess, about five years. I just, um, not at the helm of five years, I was with good old boat for just over five years. Um, at the helm, like, since about mid 2017, I was, I was running the magazine. But no, I, I stepped away. I guess I wasn't really good at setting boundaries in terms of time because it's the kind of job that can just take all of your time. You know, if you, sure. there's no end to it. There, there's just no logical end and you're working from home. So there's not even a commute that breaks things up. And um, that's not a bad thing if you enjoy the work. And I think I had stopped enjoying it as much as I did in the beginning. And I just felt it was time to, 
to step away and let, let someone else take it on. But no regrets about the time that I did do. And I learned so much and I really enjoyed it. And I'm immensely proud of the issues that came out with me on the masthead. And I enjoyed working with all of the writers that I got to work with. It's a good, good, good experience. Well, I have to say for anybody who doesn't know good old boat, I, I too grew up with Cruising World and, and love it. But I've just been, because I was going to talk to you, reading over a number of issues from last year of Good Old Boat. And man, I there's just so much good stuff in here. And I'm going to fill out one of the cards and, and subscribe because um, not that I need more Stanley material to read, but um, uh, it's just, I'm really enjoying it. Oh, thank you very much. That's that's really nice to hear. Yeah, and I, I don't say that just because because we're chatting. I really have found a lot of articles very interesting and informative. Feels down to earth and I, that I connect with in a way that some of the glossier sailing magazines I don't. So that's really nice to hear. I appreciate it. One one just quick pitch for that magazine. It is a good magazine, um, but if you look at the amount of content, you know, it, it feels thin to people like a lot of them have gotten very thin. But if you look at the amount of content relative, relative to advertising, there's just as much content in every issue of Good Old Boat as there is pages of content as there is in like Cruising World. How, how does the magazine survive then with not as much advertising? It's, it's a subscriber-based magazine. It does cost more to subscribe per year, though that gap is narrowing. And there are advertisers, but just not, we don't have the pages and pages and pages of you know charter boat advertisers and, and stuff like that. So. It's just a different business model. It's also an independent magazine. It's owned by individuals, not you know by a conglomerate that owns many, many magazines, which is an advantage and a disadvantage. You know, we don't have the same resources, or they don't have the same resources, but um, or constraints, or the same constraints. Yeah, yeah. Michael, what haven't we talked about that you'd want to touch on? You know, I'll tell you how the the book came about, the Voyaging with Kids book that you mentioned. Yeah, please. Um, We'd returned after Alaska, we came, sailed back south to the Sea of Cortez. I had this, this revelation. I mean, cruise gives you a lot of time to think. I mean, you're, you're, you know, night watches, you're just sitting there for hours and hours in your own head, which isn't for everybody, but I love it. I had this revelation that there needs to be an updated guide for cruising with kids because just, just one didn't exist. And I'd kind of thought that before, and it, it stemmed from a revelation I had maybe earlier that day. Someone had recommended this um, new at the time guide to the Sea of Cortez. You know, this is our second time. We'd been cruising in the sea back in the late, in the mid nineties on that first trip. And I had all the cruising guides that I had then, people like Jack Williams and the Cunningham guide. We had those on the boat and I'd, I'd kept them. And now I had them on this second boat, the second cruise. And someone was recommending this book and all the new cruisers, you know, had this book. There was a couple that wrote it, Sean and, and somebody. It was real colorful and pretty. And I had in my head like, no, that's just lame. You know, the, nothing's changed. You know, the rocks are in the same place. You don't need a new book. These guys did a great job. Jack Williams is volume one, volume two. They're excellent cruising guides, great aerial photos. And I had this prejudice. And then I met this some cruisers I really respected. And they said, oh, this book is amazing. I said, well, what's, how's it better than this? They gave me a copy. I started reading through. I got, this is amazing. You need, it, it, it was, I'm so glad this couple, you know, reinvented the wheel because it was time. And that's when it occurred to me, gosh, well, there is room to rewrite something that's already been written and there hasn't been stuff written about cruising with kids. So I 
thought it'd be a fun project to take on. And I reached out to my friend, Sarah Johnson, who was another cruising family that I knew. And we'd been sailing together. And I, I said, let's, you know, she had younger kids than I did. So I thought that was good if another author had different age kids. And I said, we need a parent with older kids. And I knew Bean, and I reached out to her. She was on board. So the three of us just got really excited about the project. And we all worked on it via email kind of remotely because we were in different parts of the world soon after we started. Got, you know, went through the business of finding a publisher, did our research and wrote proposals. And Sarah by then had sailed across the Pacific to New Zealand and she met Lynn and talked about the project and Lynn got excited about it. That's how it all came about. It was all so much fun to do. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's, it doesn't happen easily. It's all stuff that came out of us, but it was uh, real rewarding. And I'm, I'm really, I'm proud of that book. You should be. I, I been a great resource for me and I recommend it to anybody who's interested in sailing with kids. Michael, this has been a real pleasure. So many more questions for you. I hope we get to meet in person one of these days. Yeah, keep in touch. Let me know how your, your family cruising plans go. I'm, I'm excited for you because there's nothing more exciting than planning to go cruising. You know, it, cruising is awesome and it's a whole different thing, but the actual planning of it is a, is is its own adventure that is really neat. And my wife and I walked around with a secret for five years because we didn't want to tell our employers. And it was just kind of this little thing we had between us that, you know, we told some neighbors and we knew that they would just dismiss it. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that's cool. And I remember like four and a half years into it, then we're at a dinner party and we said, oh, you know, remember we told you we're going to say like, you're really going to do that? Stuff became more real and it was just fun. It was just, that was a neat time. And I'm envious that you've got that time now. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ben. It, it has been. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed the interview. You can find Michael's books, both Voyaging with Kids and his other books, Selling Your Writing to Boating Magazines, on Amazon. If you want to reach out to me with thoughts or comments, you can find me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or email me at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, and until next time, smooth sailing.